Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. Today on episode 22, I welcome Todd Vick to the conversation. Todd Vick is an award-winning Christian writer and event speaker and a former Southern Baptist pastor. We discuss his latest book, The Renewing of Your Mind, Asking Modern Questions to Ancient Answers. Todd reveals vulnerable moments of childhood trauma, shares his story of addiction and healing. He presents a renewed vision for readers to embrace as they work through past experiences with a new lens. One of the things I really appreciated about The Renewing of Your Mind is the book asks us to confront the ritualized habits that we kind of cycle through and instead welcome a season of change and uncertainty with a renewed faith. Todd shares why breaking habits and creating new patterns can help us live in the present moment and de-escalate triggered reactions. We discuss why 2020 needs to be the year of intimacy. Todd reveals what he discovered about restoration, and we chat a bit about why it's so hard for us to recognize Jesus. Renewing our minds may help renew the church. We dive into intentionality, attention, vulnerability, authenticity, intimacy, all this and more. This is an excerpt from The Renewing of the Mind from Accessing the Supernatural. Every single one of us is divinely endowed with the ability to do supernatural things, to change lives for the better. All it takes is for us to share who we are, give what we have, do what we can, and enjoy the satisfaction that humanity and the greater good have been served in a way that is not of this world. Todd Vick is currently working on his second book with Choir Publishing. To connect with Todd Vick, you can find him at Facebook at Todd R. Vick Writes. You can visit his website, toddvick.com, or you can email him directly, todd at toddvick.com. For his latest book, please check out Amazon. Before we get started with this conversation, I wanted to talk about something that I had recently written about on my Patheos blog. I had said that the sermons were in need of sex, and so over the course of the next few months, I want to be prodding types of discussions on this podcast where I can dialogue with a variety of different walks of life, asking questions such as, how do we provide an erotic education in the church, and what does it look like? And I want to hear from you. What do we need to be addressing? The purity culture mentality that's devastating relationships as well as individuals? I've often heard that this purity mentality has created nothing but a shame culture within the church. And I think that maybe perpetuates the shameful ways in which the church covers up sex abuse. So some of the questions I'm curious about what you want answered have to do with a variety of things, such as porn. What do we want to see as a result of a new sexual integration with the church? What do we want the church to talk about regarding sexual identity, the erotic? What can we be teaching on and instructing on and offering guidance on beyond just marital relationships? How do we incorporate a healthy sense of sexual self without relying on labels and categories that divide us from the oneness? Does the church need to speak on polyamory? And what are you seeing that's 
making a difference in your own community, in your own church. If you're interested in joining the discussion, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you want to have a recorded conversation about erotic education, you can find me on Facebook, you can find me on Twitter, you can find me on Instagram, and you can email me directly at danielle.kingstrom at live.com. And now, on to the conversation with Todd Vick. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. It's um, technology is never what it pretends to be. Things happen like that. And, and you know, sometimes you can't even get the, the time zone right. And right. that happens too. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad we were finally able to get this going too with all of the um, interferences we kept having. Yeah, same here. Yeah. So I have to tell you, I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, I really appreciated all your anecdotal injections. It was like you, you weaved this um, kind of biographical backstory into all these new ideas you were presenting, and I thought that was really awesome. I like anecdotes, so I really appreciate it. And you had a lot of different kind of like mystic and contemplative approaches that you touched on. And um, I really liked how you seemed to be very generous with your criticism of what you left <laughs> in kind of your reflection process. And a lot of times... It's not easy to offer that much grace after you go through that kind of trauma and, and disappointment and kind of unveiling of like, oh, everything I was going through was kind of a lie. Yeah. And so I really appreciated your grace that you extended and kind of looking back in hindsight and understanding of why we believe some of the things that we do. And so one of the first things that really stuck out that really pinged on just kind of a frequency that I've been, I think, more aware and attentive of is this idea of isolation and feeling invisible and feeling like your existence just, I don't know what it is. And you touched on something where there was an intervention and it was kind of like me or the beer and your dad picked beer. Right. And so I'm wondering if you can just kind of take us back to that, that, that story, that, that moment when you were a child and you, you felt like no one noticed you. Yeah, it was, um, it's, it really started in first grade. Um, we lived in Wisconsin and then we left Wisconsin second grade, moved to South Carolina to this day. I have no idea why. Um, I think my dad just was in trouble or something. We had to leave the state for all I know, but, um, down here, it just, um, the, the drinking stopped for a little while and then it just started up again. Hmm. And we were having this family gathering. We have, we do have relatives in, uh, uh, about an hour and a half away. So they came up and we were having this little family barbecue cookout. And, you know, dad just got extremely drunk and was being very obnoxious. Um, 
just talking mean to everybody. And, and I think he, um, I'm not, I, I think he might've hit somebody or poked somebody. And mm-hmm. uh, my grandfather just got up and was ready to tackle him and sat him down and, and uh, just said, look, his name was Dick. Um, look, Dick, you've got this beautiful family, a wife and three children, and you've got this beer and you can't go on like this anymore. So you're going to have to choose. And he waited a few minutes and then kind of broke down in tears and said, I choose the booze. Mm. Um, and that was a, that was pretty much a defining moment for me. You know, dad, as a, I was about nine years old, eight, nine years old, my, you know, just my dad loves beer more than me. That was my, that's what I took away from that. Mm. Um, and then there were other times where he just kind of rejected my wanting to be around him and, and other stuff. And it just, it, my parents divorced and he took off and we didn't see him again for a long time. Yeah. And do you, you know, I, I, when I read that story and I thought back about my own childhood and I've been really aware of just kind of new research coming out about what our childhood stressors and experiences can, can be carried with us through the rest of our life and how it can affect us. And when someone else shares kind of a biographical backstory like that, in which you, you, you pinpointed this one point of a trauma and an experience that you think might've kind of set you on a trajectory for something. It's actually kind of poetic that I feel like we can all get to that place and recall that we've all felt isolated or invisible or just not important. And as, as morbid as that might be, I think that's kind of the beautiful thing that connects all of us. We do start off in life. I mean, and we're still figuring all this crap out too, right? Like, I mean, have you ever lived your life before? <laughs> you know, I haven't. Yeah. And so nobody's done this before. And so we're just all walking experiments, but we're walking experiments that do question our existence and our purpose. And I think more and more what we're seeing is that 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 aspect of our lives needs to kind of be like brought forth into our present. Sometimes we need to pull that that child out and love that child into our present. And in a lot of ways that can be integrated and can strengthen us. I really appreciate how you took what you knew from that and then you can go into realizing that these thoughts can become habits and patterns. And you start breaking down why it's so important that we recognize our habits and patterns because our trauma can actually just perpetuate this kind of standardized way of living. And we do everything routine. We don't ask questions why we just keep doing it over and over. And so you introduce neuroplasticity. And this is, uh, it, is it kind of maybe your baby part of the story that you really want to grow and really want to unfold? That seems to be very central to the rest of your approaches and practices that they work in there. Yeah. And so what drew you into that? You said you were kind of a, you're kind of a science nerd, aren't you? Very much so. Yeah. So what, what, what drew you to neuroplasticity? A few years ago, I saw a movie called The Secret. And there was a, uh, a man in that movie named John Asaraf. And I began following him online and, and going to his free webinars. And finally, I picked up a copy of his book, Having It All. Mm-hmm. And he really does do a great job of, of getting into the mind and the brain and how things work and how we can manipulate things to be better, how we can send new thoughts and to, to you know, reprogram our minds to, to think better thoughts and have better outcomes. 
a lot of what he deals with, of course, is getting wealthy. And I, I think a lot of them deal with that as far as yeah. law of attraction. That's what it's become is just, a, you know, I need to make quick money, use law of attraction. But it doesn't work that way. It's so much more than that. Yeah. Um, so much more than money. Kind of like the prayer of Jabez. That was another another thing that, you know, Christians turned into a, hey, I want, I want my territory to ex- expand. I want, I want blessings. And, um, and then it becomes all about us. And we don't even know why we're. I like that you brought up that book. Um, I, I actually hadn't read that book, but I've, I've had it for a long time. The prayer of Yabez. And I was like, weird. I've never had any interest in reading it. And then I actually started reading it while I was reading yours. And it's actually um, a good read. It's a real quick read. It is. It is. The it's book a is cute not little as book. bad as I guess what the people did afterwards. But, yeah. Um, that, that's what we do. We, you know, we Americanize yeah. our, our faith by using it to make more money and get more power and have more influence. Yeah. And that's just not what we were put on earth to do. Yeah. We, we turn everything into a money thing, don't we? We, everything always ends up being geared towards money. And I'm like, that's not the kingdom way. I'm pretty sure we're not supposed no. to go that route. And you don't know how to tell people. And I mean, we're caught up in it, right? I, I am. I sit here and I'm like, well, I'm not that materialist, but um, I kind of own thousands of books. So maybe I kind of am. And we don't realize that there's so much that we kind of cling to that we think we need to have. But what we really need to have is just clarity of mind. And clarity of mind comes from, you know, injecting newness. But also, I think what's also important is and, and maybe you agree with me on this. Do you think we kind of have cycles of scenarios in which we maybe continue to go through, regardless if we want to set it in motion? There always seems to be cycles of highs and lows for people. And right. so when we are greeted with these cycles, knowing they're coming, like for my husband and I, we feel like every autumn is heavy, everything's so heavy, and it's so stressful, and, and we're we hate everybody. I mean, farming season can make you crazy and we're at each other's necks and, you know, he's never home and, and I have so much going on and then there's post garden. And I mean, so anyway, we have these cycles, but I love that this idea that we can create new thought patterns. I think those new thought patterns can help us maybe handle those cycles better. Those cycles of stress, those cycles of suffering, the, the, the dark times to pull us back into the light for the new rebirth and regrowth. And so I'm just curious, what are some of the patterns that you stopped to, to, and actually started paying attention to and went, I think I have to break these or switch them up a little bit? Were there any in particular for you where you were like, I'm, I'm seeing that I do this habitually and I don't even know why. Maybe I shouldn't. Yeah, it, it- it took um, therapy, of course, to help me find some of this stuff. And, mm-hmm. and um, that, that was a big part of it. Um, therapy, some medication, some clarity of thought. Um, I realized that, you know, all my life I have just loathed myself, but mm. I tried to be the best at everything that I did. And I won awards and I graduated, you know, near the top of my class in high school and all that. And, and um, you know, even as a pastor, as a father, if I'm, you know, if I'm not the best, then I'm not doing it right. And so that kind of trips, you know, trips you up along the way. But, um, you know, I started realizing that it it has nothing to do with me. It's just what I think, what I think of myself. And I actually, you know, as a part of my therapy, went back to a little nine-year-old me 
and, um, you know, just made peace with that, that, you know, he didn't know what he was saying. He was drunk. I mean, I've done, I've been drunk and I've said things. Yeah, like, me too. <laughs> me too. I tried, tried to give him the benefit of the doubt there, but, but, you know, I realized how much that had damaged me growing up because most of my friends at school, they had their mom and dad and they, um, did things together as family. And I just didn't have that life. My, my mother and she raised three kids after he split. And when he was there, it was just awful. Um, mm. so, you know, those are my childhood memories. And then my mom re uh, remarried years later, but she started seeing this other fellow that she ended up remarrying is my dad. I call him my dad now. He's technically my stepdad, but he had some problems with the booze as well. So most of my life was um, watching drunks misbehave and, you know, trying to help them make coffee, go pick them up. Uh, I mean, that, this just became my life. And my friends didn't live that way. At least I didn't think they did. So yeah. for years, I kind of felt like I don't really belong anywhere because everybody's got it together. And I, I just don't. I, I'm, I was afraid to have people see my family because it was just, we just were dysfunctional <laughs> with a capital D. Mm -hmm. and, and we definitely put the funk in dysfunctional growing up, but it, it was tough. Um, and both my sisters, if we were to sit around here and have a little talk, we'd all agree that that moment really sets motion in our lives and, and we've yeah. gone through highs and lows. Um, but that, that was a, that was a defining moment. And then going back and making peace with that and thinking mm -hmm. new thoughts about it and being able to forgive my father, um, what, this were all big steps and we can all get there. Yeah. It, it's, it's within us. It's, it's the, it's the mind. Um, you know, the apostle Paul was absolutely right. Be, you know, be transformed, changed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. And he was really onto something there. And the science backs it up in so many different ways. Neuroplasticity is just one of many different, you know, highbrow uh, brain science things that are going on right now. People are discovering about the, the human mind. Mm. Um, there, there's just so much material. And I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. I'm no expert. I'm a student on this stuff. Yeah, I've only started using it in the last few years, but but it's really made a big difference in how I feel about myself because it's not about me. Um, it's about my purpose. It's about me being Jesus to everyone in my life every time. All you know, even loving the people that cut you off in traffic and things like that, even though it's still difficult for me. That those are things that I'm aspiring to. Yeah, I just love everybody around, whether they want it or not, because uh, you know that feels so much better than feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. Feeling like you're not good enough and all of that. Yeah, I agree. So you were kind of victim of the perfectionist mentality. Overcompensated, it, felt about myself. It's a, it's a hard mentality to escape. Um, I also just recently read this book called Selfie by Will Storr. And a lot of the focus was actually on suicide, but it was more so about how we can't be. We created this self-centered self-image, the I generation, the me, me, me generation. And that we didn't create parameters around that. We didn't set boundaries for integrating that kind of aspect into our lives with everything else. And so we never really figured out how to develop like a whole self. And I think what we're seeing right now, as far as what I know in my 39 years of life, is that there is an awakening to people becoming more aware that everything that we've been thinking and every way we've been looking at things has just not been wide enough. And we, 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 we wanted to be so self-centered and self and, and, and self-focused that 
I think it, it created such a disconnection that people started going, we're too disconnected. We have to fix this. And a lot of that I see correlates to so much of what the Bible speaks to in this idea of bringing the kingdom to earth. And I think a lot of that has to do, for me, when I read the Bible, I, I see a lot of Jesus's words as being things that we really need to think about philosophically, psychologically, things that we need to break down and really let's think on this, let's contemplate on it, meditate deeply on it, and see that there are so many different levels of kind of messages being revealed. But one of them is that it's your mentality and it's what you're doing for others. It's not necessarily just what you're thinking for yourself, but how are you integrating that and in how you think this way about yourself and now you see the other person as yourself too. Right. And I think that's something that's really missed. I think this idea that we, um, this idea that we see others as we see ourselves in the same way that we see others as we see Jesus. So it's kind of the thing that I do, like, especially when there's someone I just really can't stand. I'm like, okay, they're Jesus. Figure out what you don't like in Jesus right now that Jesus is showing you, you know, and and how can I twist that around and say, okay, this is a gift for me. This is a lesson. And, but we, we're, we're reactionary, so we don't really do that. And I, I like the idea of um, contemplation and meditation. And, and, and where are you on meditating? Do you do it routinely? I, do. Um, I, I want to do more of it. Um, but every time I do, it's just amazing, just relaxed afterwards and even if I don't think about it anything necessarily just sitting there breathing um focusing on your breath I mean it, chewing your gum I like yeah, that chewing the gum. I like that I was like wow that's a good one and it made me think of something I read in living Buddha living Christ which was about they asked what what makes meditation so differently than than what everybody else does and, and what do you do, do differently well we eat well everybody eats but when we eat we know we're eating Mm -hmm. just the idea. And I asked my kids to do it the other day too. They were chewing gum and I'm like, okay, so tell me what that gum feels like. Yeah. And I thought that was just such a really practical method that you could just inject into your day that you, you're maybe even subconsciously trying to do too, that you're not aware of. So what are some other practices you do? Chewing gum. Do you, do you, do you get all Lotus style and cross your legs and put the Buddhist chants on? I wish I could sit like that, but I, I cannot, oh. but, uh, you know, I do breathe. I, I have uh, apps that I use sometimes to help. Yeah. Uh, there's this wonderful thing that my wife discovered, uh, that helps me go to sleep every night. It's, uh, this the soundscape site. I'm not even sure what it's called, but every night before I go to sleep, I, I put on this one. It's called rainy walk in the woods. Ooh. So that is just, I mean, I'm asleep in 10 minutes or less. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a life changer. Now I'm like almost, I can't sleep without it. It's kind of sad, but, but it helps. Um, falling asleep is sometimes trouble for me. Staying asleep has been trouble too, but lately we've just gotten them under control and that, that has really helped a lot. Uh, there's so many simple things that, that we can do to, to change our focus and to, and to help us simplify things. That, that was really a, a big point of writing this book. It was like, you know, the brain science and all that. Yeah, it's heavy duty, but, it's also very simple if we, if we stop and think about it. Mm -hmm. um, there are laws in our universe that no matter what we think, no matter what religion we are, they exist. If you jump off a building, you will go down. You will never go up. Yeah. It's law of gravity. We can't reason with that. We can't say, no, gravity, I don't like that. I think I want to do it a different way. Try it and 
that'll be the last time. Um, and you know, the law of cause and effect, which is also kind of closely related to sowing and reaping, um, so much of our lives, what we, what we experience now is because decisions that we made, uh, thoughts that we had habits that we began to, to, uh, fester in our lives. And, and then at some point you realize that's, that's how I got here. That's how I'm, that's why I'm broke all the time. That's why I can't mm-hmm. keep a job. Mm-hmm. That's why I can't keep a marriage together. That's why I, you know, can't come out to my family or, 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 you know, whatever people are going through, we're just kind of, yeah, that's why I kept getting arrested every time I'd get drunk and have big outbursts. And my husband be like, you scaring me. I'm calling the cops. Um, <laughs> and it's been a while since that's happened though, by the way. <laughs> oh yeah. Me too. Yeah. But yeah, it's just so, it's so simple. If we, if we just stop and think and we, we don't do that. We have um, constantly on we're know. Netflix or Hulu, and, and we've just always got something occupying our time. We take a little time to just think about stuff. Um, and you don't have to call it meditating if you don't want to. Just sit there and breathe and listen to your breath. And if you think about yeah. something, think about it and just let it happen. Um, if, we, if, we, if, we would, if we could only just simplify our thought life, I think we'd, we'd get along a lot better. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Simplifying my thought life would be very difficult. I am in my life organized and clean, but my thoughts are a complete mess of chaos. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. We, um, okay. So like last year I took this course by Oren J. Sofer and it was on nonviolent communication. It's called say what you mean. And he injected a lot of these kind of like Buddhist contemplative practices to not only really getting down to understanding your words and the intention you set behind them, but also making sure that you kind of like ruminate in, in pondering, you know, we don't do that anymore. It used to be conversations would take place between people and there would be pauses. And Theodore Zeldin says thoughts need time to make love. And we don't give our thoughts time to make love. That's why our thoughts are not loving anymore. They're so reactionary. I mean, just like a relationship, it's not like that. You need time to process and create the love out of those ideas. I think that speaks a lot to what uh, Jesus says about what the heart's, what the heart says, what the heart feels, mouth speaks. I'm so bad with Bible verses, by the way. But it's something along the lines of that. And I really think that's a lot of it just, and how many times are we told to just like be still and be silent? And you put all those kind of ideas together and it's like, we're supposed one mouth, two ears. Let's chill. Let's think. Let's, and I think that too. And I think, you know, uh, even in social media, I engage with people and sometimes you notice, okay, this, the tone feels, even though we can't really feel the tone, the tone feels like it's escalating. Let's take a breather here. I'm going to process some of this and come back. Answer me now. What's the matter? Are you backing out of the fight? And it's like, yeah. we're not having a fight. We're having a conversation. <laughs> yep. And I want to think about this because I want to be meaningful about what I'm saying. I want to make sure that I've really thought about what I've read and I'm interpreting it the right way. Because if we respond, if we go at it reactionary, we are reading into it. We're projecting into it. Whatever biases we carry for that person or whatever emotion we're feeling at the time, whatever mood we're at, and we're not willing to pull back and go, is this person making this statement in an effort to be malicious towards me? Or are they just trying to tell me what they're trying to tell me? And am I just jumping the gun and freaking out over nothing? And do I need to slow down? And I mean, I catch myself, 
and arguments with my husband, you know, I'll be like, you know what you should. And then I'll go, I should just hold on, please. Um, I'm going to process, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But we, but it's insta everything now. And so you can't, because if you take too long, it must be because you can't argue or something. And right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, uh, technology has really changed so much of how we do things nowadays. Uh, even church is not like it used to be. You don't have to go to church anymore. You can just watch it online mm-hmm. um, unless you just crave the fellowship and all that. But um, there, there are so many options. Yes. Um, you know, you can go sit in a coffee shop and, and read scripture or meditate or pray. And, and that can be church for you. Uh, some people like to go hiking. Some people like to go hunting and they're just out there in the, you know, in the quiet enjoying themselves. And that they call that church. And we used to be so against that, the church would, you know, stand up and say, that's not what church is. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to come to church and you got to pay your tithes. And, you know, they're all saying this because, you know, either the pastor wants to make more money or the church wants to make more money and we're running it like a business. And yeah. uh, I've been through, I have been through all of that mm-hmm. um, over the years. And it's just, it's, it's ineffective. It does not work. Um, and, and millennials now have got that figured out and they yeah. are leaving the church in droves, yes, which is are. kind of scary to think about. If I were still pastoring, I'd, I'd be very afraid. In fact, I think I was at my last, my last pastor because the young people were going to other people's churches because they had more stuff. Um, cause they know, they know bull crap when they see it, it's, uh, it's, yeah. and, and they, they do not want it anymore. They're going to do this and they've got commitment down. They, you know, they stay committed more They're They take marriage more seriously. Uh, I just know many, so many young couples that I know they're doing great because that they're focused on that. They're not focused on themselves. They've learned mm-hmm. that the way that the Gen Xers and the baby boomers did marriage doesn't work. 50% of us end up divorced and we don't need that. We're going to go a different, better route. And so they're leading the charge and, and people, you know, my age, you know, are, trying to figure out what's going on. We are scratching our head. Why are people leaving the church? Uh, well, duh, there's no substance. And even the, um, you know, for years I was, you know, grew up in the eighties, you know, when contemporary Christian music was a thing. Um, and so many churches fought against it. The church I attended was not in favor of it at all, but now it's, it's like in every hymnal, it's in every worship guide, all these songs that they said we couldn't listen to. Now they're played in church. Uh, you know, everything changes, but you know, that was, the they change a little thought. too late though. Don't they? Mm-hmm. They're a little yeah. slow to the game. And then you're like, no, we're, we're done with that. Now I see a lot of, I see a new wave coming to the church. I see a lot of churches that are trying to implement new ideas that are trying to implement, um, different religious ideals outside of Christianity, you know, trying to integrate a bigger idea of oneness and connection and, and, and pushing conversation and contemplation. Uh, Danny Prada in Heartway Church in, in Florida, he's doing that. They do, they do meditation before he starts a sermon every Sunday. And so they have someone come in and lead this meditation. And I think, yeah, you get everybody real chill, opening their Focus, minds, yeah. thinking real deeply. And then Danny Prada, he's amazing. He's philosophical, psych- psychological, theological, and then a lot of realness. And so, and he's, he's so subtle about the way that he kind of hits those hot button issues and addresses them in such a subtle matter that it's loving and it's basic. And I think if churches took approaches more like that, and I mean, like Greg Boyd too, and, and Dan Kent here at Woodland Hills Church in Minnesota, 
they are implement. I mean, it's psychological, philosophical, theological humor, you know, comedic performance and realness as well. And the, the, you know, that everybody loves them and they're telling you new things that you didn't know. And they're introducing ideas like neuroplasticity as well. And, and, and meditation and, and contemplation. And I think, I think churches need to go that approach and also stop with their silly rules and regulations and, yeah. and, and, and do you vow to do this? And do you, this is our mission statement. It's like, be a place where people can come. And if people leave, just try and get new people in. I always thought church should be kind of like a revolving door. People come in, they get what they need. They go, they come back when they get a little bit more nourishment and then they can go. I never understood memberships and, and commitments to tithes. I thought they, I, I thought the church was like a doctor. When I'm feeling like I need a little bit more Jesus, I'm going to go get it. But then I do understand the community and the connections that are built through people that are all seeking the same thing. Who am I and why, why am I here? You know, That's what we're all trying to figure out. And that's a great community to create and establish. I think we have to get rid of these ways to exclude people because what ends up happening is, as you kind of speak to is there's, there's these fragments of society that kind of get left by the wayside. And I really love the term that you pulled out and focused on. I really love that idea of the fragments, the fragmented and in your take on the marginalized and those that live on the fringe of society from oppressive means or just exclusionary means, phobic means. I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit about what made you kind of draw your attention to that. What was the complaint in your heart that convicted you to realize that we needed to focus on things that we had been distracted from because we were after money, power, greed? It was it was my last church, and for years I've you know wandered off the the ranch and gotten into something else and a little different and. I got into the Pentecostal movement years ago and the new wave, third wave um, Pentecostal and all that. Got into the charismatic stuff, got into the less charismatic stuff. I mean, it's all pretty much the same. You have to conform if you want to fit in or you're just not going to fit in. And I'm like, I just don't want to fit in anywhere. I don't want to be somebody that just blends in uh, with everyone else. I, I would like to be... Um, a standout or not, not so people can look at me and say, well, but, but just to, to be original, to be real, yeah. to be authentic. authentic, authenticity has been my word for 2019. Uh, yes. And I think my word for 2020 is going to be intimacy. Mm. We are missing that. Yes, you know, we are. Great. You know, we had such a, you know, programs and, and I used to just get so stressed about sticking to the program. Mm -hmm. um, somebody would stand up and want to say something in church. And it's like, that's not in the program. We really better not do that. Um, and I, I hate that I was like that for such a long time. Yeah. Why can't we stand up and go, Hey, I have a question. Can you yeah. tell me what that verse means? Cause I have met, you know, like I tried to do that once. My pastor was not happy with me. He was not. And I was like, why can't I ask you questions? Cause he'd always say, why do you ask me so many questions? And I'm like, cause I'm trying to understand you're just supposed to listen. And I'm like, that is not how it's supposed to be, but that's how it is. Just, you know, do this, yeah. read your Bible, pray, go to church, uh, talk to people about Jesus during the week, yeah. fulfill all those duties. And you come back Sunday and you kind of pat each other on the back. And, but, um, 
my wife and I, we, we uh, didn't go to church for quite a while after, after we left our last one uh, in 2016. I write about that, a lot of that in the book, but yeah. it was such a turning point for our lives, especially for mine. I, I just realized I am not cut out for this anymore. I, I cannot be this guy anymore. It's just, I, I hated myself. I couldn't mm, do it. Yeah. Um, I had to be real and they didn't want me to be. Um, in fact, they were this last church. They were very cover up kind of people not wanting to ruin the church's reputation, which I don't even know if it had one, <laughs> but um, you know, we, we finally uh, got involved with a, a, a fairly small church that we're very, we're, we're really getting into and they have life groups that meet once a week in a home. And that's where the intimacy comes in that where you're sharing your story, you're sharing what's going yeah. on with you this week, you're sharing your needs. Uh, and then the group goes into that need with you. Um, a few, a few months ago, we had a really big financial hurdle to overcome and we shared that with our life group and people prayed and I, you know, I was up all night. I couldn't sleep. And then the pastor talked to him the next day. He's like, I couldn't sleep either thinking about you guys. And somebody else in the group is like, I was up all night worried about you guys. That's, that's what it's supposed to be like authentic and intimate. Yeah. Um, Feeling into each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that intimacy. Um, Esther Perel, she's a, famous sex counsel therapist. She's viral, but she says in, she calls intimacy into me see, mm-hmm. and we don't want to see into people. Yeah. I think because we don't want to see into ourselves. I think that's why intimacy is really hard because it requires that you be authentic. It requires that you're vulnerable and you know that when you're vulnerable, you're more willing to be honest and we don't like to be vulnerable because if I'm too vulnerable, then I'm too honest. And at some point you might use this against me. And so we fear that. And I think that's where that whole weakness idea comes into play. It's not being vulnerable as a weakness, but if I expose myself to you, you could turn around and re-expose that and exploit it. And that would destroy a person. But yeah, the the intimacy thing is so important. And I always thought the church was supposed to teach us how to be intimate. Isn't our spiritual self the most intimate self? And if we're not figuring out how to take that and project it and integrate it into all of our other selves, I I don't know how we're supposed to connect with people. And how can you spread the message of Jesus if you don't even know how to like get close enough to someone to, to even talk about Jesus? Right. Yeah, I love, I love that. Uh, I'm on you, 2020 intimacy. I love it. I love um, you. Yeah. I really appreciated something that you wrote about that I didn't know about. Let me pull a page up here. I thought it was great. I have this written down. <laughs> I'm not 100 pages off. Hold on. So in Take Your Seat at the Table, you wrote about Jimmy Carter. And Nixon. Why? Anyway, what you, I was going to quote it, but you wrote about um, when Hubert Humphrey died and all of the former presidents went and Nixon showed up and Nixon is Nixon. And Jimmy Carter walked over to him and kind of invited him in and shook his hand. And come home, Mr. President. Just, yeah. Had resigned in such a shame, you know, for Jimmy yeah. Carter to just say, welcome home, Mr. President. Oh, wasn't Jimmy Carter just amazing though? Yeah. I loved that picture that you painted because for me, I was like, imagine if everyone in our country was willing to extend that handshake to Donald Trump right now. 
would that not transform everything? Would that not show we renewed our minds? Because that's, I think, the way we're supposed to see people. Yeah. We're supposed to kind of go, yeah, I know you got a lot of that ugly shit back there. Me too. Me too. But welcome home, Mr. President. It just sent such a, I was like, oh, that's beautiful. That would be so beautiful. That would be the kind of love that we want to spread all over. For you, though, why did you bring that up? Like, what was your focus on that? What, what stood out about that that you wanted to project outwards for other people to glean from it? Um, restoration is what I saw in that story. Um, I mean, I read about Watergate. I was a little boy when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Nixon resigning on TV. It was a big deal. Um, but, you know, so many years later to be still acquainted with or, you know, acquainted with that um, part of your life. And, yeah. Uh, and Jimmy Carter just said, hey, you know, you're you're home. Mr. President, I mean, even, I mean, what an honor to bestow upon a guy who resigned in a, in a scandal. Yeah. Um, Mr. President, how are you? And I admit, I have to admit, I have um, really struggled with the current administration. Yeah. Uh, Really have struggled. Um, And you know what you said about extending a hand to Donald Trump. I had not been willing to do that. Yeah. Not even willing to think about doing that. But I, I realized that if I don't, I'm missing the whole point. Yeah. Um, and I don't have to say that he's, you know, God's man in the White House and God brought him to us. I don't have to say all that, but just to, to extend that courtesy of just praying for him. And uh, I doubt that I'd ever get to meet him, but if I did, I would shake his hand and I actually voted for him. So, I mean, I yeah. had an expectation that this, this might really go well and just off the rails a little bit, but I, I mean, every presidency does. I've been alive for 10 presidents uh, in history and they've all had their crap. When they left office there, you know, Bill Clinton, people love him now, but back then they wanted his head on a silver plate. Yes. Uh, yeah. George W. Bush, you know, we, mm-hmm. we hated him too because of the weapons of mass destruction and, and all that. Mm-hmm. But now he's like, you know, a very welcome guest speaker at colleges. Well, unless he goes to a football game with Ellen DeGeneres, okay, because that does not go over very well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that happened because that, that was the message that we need to start hearing. Yeah. Well, a lot of people insisted that that was a white privilege kind of thing to do. And I, I wrote it, I wrote about it. I got beat up on my Patheos blog over it, but I was like, no, she did a good thing. We are not going to judge her for doing a good thing. This is a good thing. And that's what I thought, you know, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, because that's Mm -hmm. what we're living in right now. Or we're looking at people doing really good things and we're still going, it's not enough. It wasn't enough. It's not good enough for me. And it's fake. And it's just, you're just placating. It's like nobody is ever satisfied. That is the hardest thing. Nobody is ever, ever satisfied with anything. I liked your dividing wall of hostility. And you talk about America. We like our privacy and our fences and our shrubs and our, and I thought, yeah, you know, I know of a current yard battle going on in a nearby town that is taking place with my sister and another neighbor. No joke. They are fighting over their precious grass. Who is this? And I thought, and it got gross. It got ugly. It got grotesque. My sister and her husband were very mean and very divisive. And the other people are Hispanic and it did not. I mean, people were talking about it in other towns, and I thought, we're, we're fighting over land that we're renting. Like, this is, this is where we're at right now. If there is a reason for us to pick a side, 
if there's a reason for us to stand on one side of a fence or another, we will do it. We are so wrapped up in black and white, this or that, dualistic ideals that we're kind of missing the point of everything we're supposed to be doing to connect and become one. And so I really appreciated that you talked about that. And um, what was it you, uh, the community breeds compassion and connection. You talked about the ancient Greeks. They believed that community was for the like-minded. And so do you think that has its flaws then when we want to create communities of just like-mindedness, what should we be looking for instead of just people who are going to be my confirmation bias and my echo chamber? We're looking for people who have like-heartness instead of maybe like-mindedness. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, Tony Evans, I think it was said that Sunday morning at 11 is the most segregated time in, in the, in the United States or the world. Uh, and it's so true. We, we tend to flock to like-minded people and what has it gotten us through the years? Um, you know, my <laughs> funny story, my uh, great, great, great grandfather came to America from Norway right after the civil war, um, brought a bunch of people with him and they, they built a church um, in Stoughton, Wisconsin. And then right up the road a little bit, another group built a church. So my, my great, great grandfather's group went and burned down their church. Oh, um, And that to, de- to this day, people still talk about that. And there's still that animosity between those two churches that are a block apart. And, and it's just it's like, what? They, they burned it down? Competition, you know, in church. And mm. It's like, we're not competing. But, but we are, we're competing. We want more yes. people. We want bigger buildings. We want this and that and the other. And it's just gotten so Americanized. We don't even, we don't even recognize Jesus when, when we see him, he, it just doesn't yes. look like we're expecting it to look like he's, he's supposed to be polished and well-spoken and, 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 you know, well-spoken. a theological scholar with all these degrees and letters behind his name. And he lives in a posh apartment in New York. <laughs> yeah, but if he was here, he'd be at First Baptist, whatever. And yeah. No, he would be out in the alleys with the drunks and the whores and the people that just don't matter to society. Those would be the people that he'd be hanging around with. And if we want to be like him, then we've got to we've got to start seeing them um, and and find ways to help. And I, I, that's another thing I like about our church. It's they do that. They, yeah, they seeing the them. They they do community things, and 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 it's very good for you to volunteer to do something is, is a life-changing thing uh, if you do it enough it, it really starts to become something you really have to do because it's just powerful uh, yeah. to change lives with just something as simple as serving soup uh, on, a, on a cold day and things like that and people are doing that um, and they're trying to organize it like we try to organize everything else but, but you know but we're trying now to to bridge the gap between the the the, the church and the community um, those who are marginalized. I, I feel so bad. I got one of my best friends um, from high school um, is, is gay and I'm the only person that knows it. I'm the only person mm. he's trusted to share that with. He cannot open up to his parents. They will absolutely disown him. And that just breaks my heart because if one of my kids yeah. came and, and told me that I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I'd be, I'd be just want them to be happy. Maybe yeah. it would be a little weird at first, but if they're happy, isn't that what we want for our kids? We want them to find happiness. My daughter came out to me questioning when she was about 13 or 14. And I was, I was attending the good Lutheran church here in town. 
I was trying to hang out with all the churchy women and I was listening to Ravi Zacharias and Timothy Keller and I was like, oh, well, you're wrong. And no, you're not. And I said that. I was like, no, you're not. And she just was kind of like, what? And I was mad and I pushed back and I was like, this is a sin. And I was upset. And yeah, I was not, I did not receive her well. And my husband finally was like, what the hell are you doing? And I thought, what? And he's like, no, this is, uh, this is not how you treat your daughter. And I, you know, I'm sitting here like Bible verses and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, Jesus would never tell you to treat your daughter this way. And I went, what? Wow. And so then I really started peeling a lot of stuff back. And um, you mentioned something on the Can I Said This at Church podcast that I always poke at. I poke at this idea all the time of myself. You said you had realized that you needed God that you, you went looking for the God that fit your character. And my husband actually pointed it out. And he said, did you hear that? And I went back and I went, oh, yeah, see, I, I say that all the time. I said, sometimes I worry that I go searching for a God that fits what I'm thinking right now because I did that with my daughter. I'm like, I have to find verses that prove that God's okay with me loving my gay daughter, or my queer daughter. And I got accused of doing that too. And they're like, well, that's what zealots do. And that's what heretics do. You don't just go chasing after the God you want. This is the God you get. But then I had to stop and pause and I'm like, okay, so what you're telling me is that I'm supposed to be more loving and accepting than God. And that didn't make sense to me. So I knew that in my pursuit of finding a more compassionate God, a more graceful God, more merciful God, that couldn't have been wrong. That's asinine to even say, really, when you think about it, you're like, you're, you're looking for a really loving God. What is wrong with you? And you're like, wait, what? That's, that's okay, right? And so, but I appreciated that because I always say that too. And I ask that, and I think I've even asked Seth that too. And I'm like, do we do that? Do we go searching for the God we want? But that says a lot about our character too. What are we searching for in that God? Well, we know what John MacArthur is searching for in his God. We know what John Piper is looking for in his image of God. And so I think it's safe to err on the side of I'm looking for a really, really cool guy that is like, I love all of you people, no matter what. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just I liked that you said that. So I'm not like knocking on it. But I think it's so interesting. It reveals such a piece of our character that is that your dove? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even hear her anymore. <laughs> For a second, I thought I heard my hyenas or the hyenas, the coyotes outside. Cause I heard something and I'm like, Oh, are the coyotes back already? And then I thought about it and I remembered you had a dove on, I heard you on another podcast. And I think you said, didn't you say that you have a dove? Yep. You have two dogs, a bunny and a dove. Yep. Yeah. It's a nice, lovely little sound. Particular reason. Do you meditate to her just chirping like that Sometimes. or humming? That is so sometimes. cool. But when you're watching television or trying to do a podcast, oh. sometimes it's like, ooh, not now, Angel. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, she's just doing what doves do. Oh, I love it. Um, you know, when I finished reading your book, I felt like it reminded me so much of so many different ideas that I've been introduced to in, like, the last year or two of, like, Cynthia Bourgeau, who was really big into contemplation. And I don't know if you're familiar with like Eckhart Tolle or Alan Watts and Matt Kahn, but 
there was so much that mirrored uh, so many of their concepts and ideas that I think we really need pulled into the, I don't know, post-Christian, uh, reconstructing Christian kind of uh, circle. And, 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 you know, are you familiar with Dr. Joe Dispenza? I've heard of him, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then Dr. Alexander Shia. I'm actually reading a book of his right now called Heart and Mind, and it's the four gospel journey to radical transformation. And it breaks down the gospels amazingly mm-hmm. for you to look at them in a completely different way. But so much of what you're speaking to is kind of in all of these other names too that I see coming around. And I think, yeah, if that was kind of intertwined with this whole church resurgence idea, and then we maybe put in a little bit of a, I don't know, erotic education so we can maybe start confronting the sex abuse and the sex scandals that we keep seeing coming out of the church. I think that you can renew the church as you have instructed us how to renew our mind. And so just with that, I just want to say I have really appreciated this conversation. Loved your book. Um, I will be leaving you an Amazon review soon. And um, so what's next for you? Are you, are you working on another book? Are you, what, what, what are the next steps for Todd Vick? Um, I'm, I still have to work a full-time job to pay the bills and things, but I am working on book number two. Um, I got connected with um, Choir Publishing. It's just a really neat guy. It turns out that he wanted to publish my first book, but I, I, was, I just did it myself because I didn't want to wait anymore. Um, but I, I really kind of now wish that I would just let him help me with that because it was a chore to self-publish a book. Raphael is a talented, talented creator. I'm familiar with choir. They're a good little crew. They couldn't handle yeah, me, just, but that's okay. Yeah, I'm just honored to be a part of part of that group and working on a book called The Reconstructing of Your Mind. Ooh. Gonna like a, I'm, I'm thinking about doing three in the series. Mm, I like that. First and then reconstructing um, a lot of what we've talked about, you know, reconstructing our perception of what is and what really is going on. Uh, people... Um, people used to think the world was flat and, and we'd laugh about that. Yeah. But if you walk outside or, or just stand where you are, look to the right, look to the left, look front behind it's flat. Um, so and those flat earth flat. YouTube videos are really convincing too, by the way. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it makes sense. Cause that's what it looks like. It yeah. looks flat. So we assume the whole thing's flat, but then when yeah. we get more information changes our perception. Yes. Uh, and so I'm trying to dig into some of that with some of the things that we hold so dear in, uh, in church and in Christianity and, are you going to tip some sacred cows? I hope so. Cool. You know, just if I could make people think about something and, and have, a, have a moment where they change their mind about things in a good way, then I feel like I've done what I came to do. Mm, good Write purpose. Books. Writing the books are helping me. And, and st- you know, because when you're the teacher, you've got to know the material. Yeah. So for me to write about it, I had to, I had to wait until I experienced some of it. I started writing a book 10 years ago. And I got about 17,000 words in and I just hated it. I didn't like where it was going. I wasn't feeling it. Uh, so I started writing for magazines and did some freelance stuff. And then finally, um, after that last church fiasco, I was like, I got to I gotta tell my story. This is just yeah. this too much. Well, I-, I wish everyone would tell their story and whatever craft and gift they have. I think that's really what we're supposed to do. Sharing our stories, telling our stories. And I appreciated your story so much, Todd. And Thank again... Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.